Hello and welcome to the Future of London Alumni Network podcast. Future of London is an independent cross-sector network for urban practitioners. We champion leadership and diversity, share best practice and connect good people. To find out more and get involved, visit futureoflondon.org.uk. I'm Lucy Webb, Head of Regeneration at the London Borough of Croydon, a Future of London alumna and board member. Future of London's alumni are graduates of its acclaimed London and Manchester leadership programmes and represent a growing cross-sector network of next wave urban leaders. This is our first podcast and also the first in a series where influential urban leaders talk with us about staying resilient and effective during the COVID crisis. Our guest today is David Luntz, Executive Director of Housing and Land at the GLA and Interim CEO of the Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation. Welcome, David. Hello, Lucy. Good to be here. Brilliant. So that's an incredible remit, David, (laughs) and hard to manage at the best of times. But this being an unprecedented time, how are you managing to cope? And is there anything you are drawing on from your past experience to help you? Well, look, Lucy, this is obviously very different from anything that any of us have experienced in our lifetimes. Um, And yes, there have been sort of various bumps along the way in terms of my career and many others. And uh, (laughs) some of us remember the, uh, you know, the the global financial crash a decade Mm. or more ago. But this is of a different scale and magnitude. It's a it's a more sudden shock. Uh, it's a deeper shock. It's mm-hmm. a more global shock. Um, I think we're all struggling to come to terms with it. Um, so, yes, I think there's all sorts of experiences we can draw on in terms of, you know, things we've uh, had to um, manage in the past. I think we there are some things uh, that are useful lessons from the response to the global financial crash. Mm-hmm. But no, I think we're all having to work through different um, uh, different solutions and I guess, you know, the other thing to say, obviously, is that we're only in the foothills of this thing at the moment. None of us quite know how this thing's going to pan out. Mm. So I think the most important thing is to be agile, uh, to communicate clearly, to know what's going on and to be able to think creatively and quickly. Mm, very good tips. And what's how is the GLA adapting and responding? Well, you know, I mean... Across the GLA group, um, obviously there are some things that are higher profile than others, but you know, keeping the transport system moving uh, has been a phenomenal challenge mm-hmm. for TFL for reasons that will be familiar to many listeners. I think you know, it's very important at a time like this that you know, City Hall and the Mayor in particular are sending out clear messages, uh, being seen to be very visible, you know, giving good advice to Londoners, uh, representing Londoners' interests in discussions with with government, um, and I think all of that's obviously been happening at some pace. Beyond that, though, there's been a tremendous amount of work done, and um, again, many listeners will be aware of the absolutely extraordinary work that's been done, um, not just by City Hall, of course, but by London boroughs and voluntary organisations around mm. rough sleeping and street homelessness, which has been quite amazing, really. You know, twelve mm. fifty hundred rough sleepers now put up in hotels um, a massive kind of uh, epidemic really that was going to hit our streets that's managed to be avoided mm. um, in addition to that we've been spending a lot of time um, setting up um, immediate crisis responses helping food banks community organizations uh, the mayor's set up um, a pay it forward scheme to uh, not only ensure that city hall and the GLA group, but other public sector and other large organisations 
are in a position to help to pay uh, forward cash flow uh, payments into smaller businesses to keep them moving. There's been a whole range of things. Um, but I think we're increasingly now beginning to turn our minds to what happens once we start to get through this lockdown period and how do we get London back on its feet again. Yeah, and a huge task ahead of us. Um, and what's the GLA doing in terms of an organisation supporting staff and, and managing this kind of virtual world we've moved into? Yeah, well, again, I think, you know, a lot of us have been saying, haven't we, that, you know, we've had to adapt very quickly to remote working and, uh, you know, supporting colleagues through what is a very difficult and stressful time, particularly for those that, you know, maybe have um, children at home or uh, other caring responsibilities or people living in, you know, quite cramped conditions. Um, I think generally speaking, people have responded enormously well and it's uh, a credit really to people's resilience and adaptability. I think the other thing to say is that, you know, as many others have commented, um, and the GLA is no exception, you know, we've invested very heavily, very recently actually, in, you know, portable IT kit and all the mm -hmm. rest of the paraphernalia that enables us to continue to work through these difficult times. You know, if this, if this epidemic, if this pandemic had hit us, you know, as recently as three or four years ago, I think we'd be really struggling in ways that would um, um, be even more serious than we are today. Mm. So, you know, we've been able to keep the wheels turning and people have responded brilliantly and we've got an awful lot of people, you know, redeployed or volunteering into more frontline uh, work as well. Um, so I think people have found it, um, I wouldn't say easier, but I think people have found it um uh, that they're more able to get on with their day job in some cases, but also being able to find really useful activities to do by being redeployed into more frontline emergency uh, roles and responsibilities. Yeah. And, and can you see any habits persisting beyond the lockdown, either as an organisation or on these individual bases? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, to try and, you know, imagine what London might look and feel like in you know a year two years five years ten years time um I personally my personal view is I think it's a little too early to have any kind of clarity about what the really longer term implications of this might look like but there's no doubt I don't think anyway that you know we're going to see um uh, perhaps a step change in terms of flexible working staggered travel to work arrangements it's clearly going to be a long time before uh, we get back to anything close to normality in terms of no more social distancing. That's got profound implications for workplaces, uh, for public transport, uh, for the way that we use public realm in London. And I think, you know, some of that is bound to rub off. We're going to see, I think, much more emphasis on high quality remote working with good quality hardware, software. I think there's going to be some interesting questions about the nature of workplaces, perhaps going forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are we going to see less emphasis on traditional, even even less emphasis on traditional office environments? I think there's going to be a real interest going forward in quality of public realm, public space and private space. Um, people's memories of this pandemic are going to last for a long time and that may well rub off in terms of what people are looking for in terms of living space and working space. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's quite a few habits that may change. But as I say, I think it's really a little too early to know quite how profound those longer term impacts will be. Sure, sure. And I think we're all trying to keep an eye on it. So 
turning to the other side of, of your world, um, OPDC and, and the programme of delivery there, has, have you seen the impact from COVID on that? Is, are you concerned about that? You touched on the, the task ahead in terms of recovery and bouncing back. What's, what's been your view on how OPDC has been impacted? Yeah, well, this is really interesting, Lucy. I mean, first of all, um, the bulk of what we believe will be some really, really major regeneration development activity at Old Oak has not really started yet. Um, so we're still very much in the kind of planning phase in terms of the really big kit that we think is likely to arrive over the next 10 or 20 years. Having said that, um, there are some impacts. So we've got you know, two or three major housing sites which have closed down. Um, they're beginning to reopen now, much less efficiently than they were. But, you know, with social distancing and um, Public Health England measures, they are able to get back to work. The other big one, though, of course, is is high speed two. And mm -hmm. um, as colleagues listening in will probably remember, a couple of weeks ago, the government gave the go ahead, the notice to proceed. So the construction activity for the old Oak common high speed two interchange station, biggest uh, new station to be uh, built in the UK, I think, for well over 100 years. Um, that is now proceeding again. They closed the site for a couple of weeks, but they're now back working um, to Public Health England um, safety standards. Um, so I don't think at the moment we're anticipating any significant delays in their programme, which means that all being well, they'll be opening in 2028 um, with Crossrail uh, as an integral part of that. I think the broader point, though, is that um, because the scale of regeneration opportunity is so huge, uh, at Old Oak and he's going to be very much triggered by this enormous new interchange that brings High Speed 2, Crossrail and the Great Western Mainline together. Um, it's a really fascinating opportunity perhaps for us to think about some of these issues of you know what's the new workplace going to look like, what are going to be new residential requirements, how is this place going to evolve and be planned in a way that perhaps picks up some of these themes about what London might start to or what Londoners might start to want to see in a post-COVID uh, world. So as a project, its timing is really quite um, mm. interesting from a, from a COVID point of view. That's quite fascinating, actually. Yeah, yeah the opportunity to rethink. So mm. in, in terms of the housing, you, you just touched on that slightly in terms of, you know, you said previously, what will people be looking for from their houses going forward from their private spaces? How will that relate to workspaces? The housing market overall, how do you see that being impacted by what's going on at the moment? And how do you think the market's going to respond? Well, yes. Um, and, you know, one of the things, of course, that the GLA has done uh, quite quickly is to establish a, a housing recovery task force, which is mm. chaired by Tom Copley, the, the new deputy mayor for housing. And I'm, I'm very involved in that, along with many others across the broad spectrum of um, affordable market housing providers in London. Um, so we're talking a lot about this at the moment and gathering the data uh, to help our thinking. I, I guess, you know, the obvious thing to say is that there's going to be, or there is a very profound impact in the immediate and short term. You know, it's clearly the case that, you know, housing transactions in the marketplace are uh, massively, massively impacted. Um, it's very difficult at the moment to transact a traditional mortgage application uh, valuations have ceased because of the lockdown. 
Some of that, I think, will ease relatively quickly, assuming that the lockdown is lifted on terms. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, housing market activity is going to be badly impacted for the next year or more. I think the other thing to say is that for the affordable housing providers, um, to some extent, they're not in a massively different position in many cases now because they too, as we know, are, have become increasingly reliant on market sales to cross-subsidise their affordable housing offer. And they're also looking at their own resilience and business plans in the context of, um, you know, concerns about rental income and, um, and other risks and vulnerabilities. So there's no doubt in the short term we're seeing a, a major impact. How that pans out as sites begin to remobilize with social distancing measures is going to be an interesting thing to watch because it's quite difficult to see sites moving back to 100% efficiency and uh, labor um, over the next few months at least. And then in the longer term, very difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, some have been talking about, you know, whether high density housing is going to remain as popular as it has been in London. Are people going to look for uh, lower rise, more space? Difficult to say really at this stage. I remember after 9-11, many people thought that was the mm. end of, you know, city centre offices mm. and high rise building. That didn't prove to be the case. Um, I do think that actually though, the one of the uh, likely outcomes of this is that um, we'll perhaps see even more reliance on the rental uh, market in terms of new build over the next year or two, or perhaps longer. So I think we might see, um, you know, an increase in the proportion of market rented housing. And one of the things I think we are going to need to see as a consequence of this crisis is more investment in affordable housing of various shapes and tenures, because I think that's going to be a way to keep supply moving at a time when market sale products are perhaps going to be more vulnerable. And can you see some of those market rent models changing? Do you think there'll be new things coming to the market or are we just going to see more of, of what we're seeing already? Well, I think we'll probably see more of what we've seen already, but I think there are some interesting um, ideas uh, that are being talked about in terms of perhaps some, some slightly different models or some variations on the theme. I think intermediate rent uh, might become, um, you know, more significant than it has been. I think that, you know, one thing I'm quite interested in is, is there going to be an opportunity and perhaps a, a call for um, a, a renewed emphasis on what we used to call key worker housing? You know, there's been a tremendous amount of public support and empathy, quite rightly, for frontline NHS workers, care workers and other people on the front line in during the crisis, um, it'd be quite interesting to see whether you know that might translate into perhaps some intermediate type rental products that might be targeted, for instance, at NHS workers and others. So I think you know there's 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 space and scope now to start thinking creatively about maybe some offers that are targeted at particular uh, groups of Londoners um, for whom we owe a great debt and for whom housing affordability is a major issue, which might also help um, to kickstart some housing supply, which we're gonna badly need as we come through the other side of this crisis. Absolutely. And sorry, just on the task force, you mentioned you're in the, you're in this um, process of data collection at the moment. What, what do you see the role of the task force going forward on this? So, uh, is there a remit to, to drive this recovery process as well? 
Well, yes, uh, Lucy. So, I mean, yes, we, we, we're getting, we're gathering a lot of data. I mean, we're in constant contact with all of our partners and others to try and gauge every week what's going on on the ground, you know, how many sites are reopening on what terms, how many deals are still going through, what's the situation with sales. I mean, all of that information is coming through on a very regular basis and it's incredibly useful. The job of the task force really is not just to keep an eye on that data, but to actually come forward quite quickly with some um, uh, some options and ideas that can help to, you know, put some confidence back into the sector and actually get some practical uh, things done. So we're looking at short-term measures. We're looking at things that can be done quickly and relatively easily, if you like, within the London family of organisations. So either at city hall level or at borough level or within um, uh, the housing sector within London. Um, because where we can make decisions locally, we should just get on and do that. And then obviously we're also looking at some wider measures, some perhaps more complicated, perhaps more costly measures that are likely to need some assistance and support from government. So we're looking at local um, interventions. We're looking at things that are going to require some uh, central government support. We're looking at short term things and longer term things. So the emphasis is not on, you know, creating a talking shop that forever and a day will speculate. It's about uh, getting things done here and now and trying to create some confidence and trying to get some sites moving at pace and scale once we get this lockdown lifted. And that's, I think that's an interesting point, the, the need to keep moving, the need to keep the pace on to, to make sure we don't have that, that lag in housing supply when we do have the lockdown release. But that drives me on to another question around how we ensure communities continue to be heard throughout this. How do we, do, do we make the most of consultation despite the fact it's moved online and, and some, in some places suspended completely in favour of office delegation? What's your views on how we keep that community voice coming into this? Yeah, it's a very good question and it's a very important point. And I think that, you know, there's no doubt that until we can get back to, you know, conventional face-to-face -face meetings and public gatherings, it's going to remain a challenge. You know, we've, we've, we've thought a lot about this um, at OPDC because, of course, we're a planning authority. We've got uh, a planning committee. We've got um, quite a high-profile planning application to deal with uh, just two or three weeks away, actually, which is the... Um, the high speed to section 17 old oak common station application which is probably going to be amongst the biggest planning applications that we'll ever deal with uh, and of course we're likely to have to take that decision during lockdown or certainly during social distancing measures so we will um, need to make that decision uh, remotely virtually um, but what we have said is that we've got arrangements now which mean that the public can not only um, observe that meeting as it takes place uh, in live time through um, a, a TV network that people can access remotely. But we've also made arrangements for, you know, online representations to be made um, that will be reported into that meeting uh, so that the public can actually, if they're interested, they can sort of see the discussion and the response to that. And I think, you know, this plays two ways, I suppose. You know, on the one hand, it's a real shame and it's a real drawback that we can't have traditional face-to-face -face meetings. On the other hand, I think, um, particularly since, you know, most, and I accept not all households have digital access, to some extent, this is perhaps an opportunity to extend public consultation and engagement so that those that perhaps are less 
likely to want to come to sort of conventional meetings in the evening or whatever can actually access stuff online and take part. So I think there's a kind of, there's a challenge here, but there's also a real opportunity to open up the whole issue of consultation to a wider online audience. Good point. And um, you've touched on this a lot already in terms of the role of GLA or, or what OD, OPDC is doing. What do you see the public sector's role overall in supporting the recovery? And, and does that involve more collaboration between the public and the private sector or, or the opposite? Well, look, the public sector's got an absolutely critical role to play. You know, I mean, there's that, that old saying, isn't there? You know, in a crisis, everyone's a socialist, which I think is a shorthand way of saying that, you know, when things get really difficult, you know, obviously this is a time when government and the state in all its shapes and forms moves into the front line to, um, to organise things. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing that, you know, may emerge as a consequence of this crisis is possibly, or hopefully anyway, a sort of new respect and understanding about the critical role that the public sector plays, not just as a frontline emergency provider and organiser at times like this, but also as a strategic partner and a project partner. Um, so that's going to be an interesting debate. Um, on the other hand, of course, you know, once the financial reckoning is made um, post-crisis, you know, many are speculating that, you know, the public sector might find itself squeezed again. So massive question ahead for government politicians of all sorts. Are we going to see another round of austerity or are we actually going to see investment in the public sector to work with the private sector to really get things moving again? Now, my strong view is that it should be the latter. Um, I think that, you know, there will be a, uh, uh, an expectation that the public sector gears up um, to you know, work very collaboratively um, with um, organisations in the commercial world. I think that you know, out of crises like this often emerge real opportunities to share risk and reward, uh, to create new partnerships and uh, arrangements uh, between sectors, because I think there'll be a realisation over the next few months that needs must that you know, there are going to have to be some pragmatic approaches here that are going to challenge perhaps some of the um, uh, slightly more traditional, well, we're the public sector, you're the private sector, in favour of doing more of what London actually does very well when it does it at its best, which is truly collaborative partnership arrangements between public bodies and uh, private bodies. So that's certainly where I hope things uh, move to. And I would be surprised if they don't. It may not be universal, but I think the opportunities out there for the best public sector organisations, whether it's boroughs, the GLA or others, uh, to get things moving uh, with a, uh, re hopefully, a newly invigorated private sector are going to be enormous. But on that point, though, you touched at the very beginning of this, this discussion about the fact that this is a global recession and there is obviously an impact on international development finance coming forward lots of london relies on you know investment from elsewhere have you seen that impact already are you modeling for that and and how do you see that playing out yeah well well at the moment i mean although as i said you know the 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 uh, the level of housing transactions in uh, across the sector but particularly looking at the new build sector are way way down 
um, those that are continuing are perhaps unsurprisingly largely from overseas, you know, cash buyers, those that, you know, can um, organize their uh, transactions remotely that don't necessarily rely on valuers. Um, so I think, you know, there is some evidence that actually the overseas demand for residential housing in London is, is still there uh, uh, to some degree. I, I also think, Lucy, that, you know, although London is really going to take a battering, I think, over this COVID-19, and it's definitely going to take quite some time before the London that we all know and love um, re-emerges, um, you know, the truth of the matter is it will remain a massively uh, exciting and enticing prospect for global investors. Um, and, you know, one thing that seems pretty clear um, is that, if anything, I think COVID-19 um, is going to uh, lead to an even more powerful um, Southeast Asia, China um, locus in terms of global investment and influence. That means that, you know, that wealth, that equity uh, from that part of the world and others is going to be looking for opportunities to invest in places that, you know, they like, that represent growth, that um, are attractive for a whole range of reasons. And I think London will remain that, that sort of destination. Having said that, uh, and this perhaps goes back to the previous point about the role of the public sector and partnerships, I don't think London should take any of that for granted. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've come through a period of two or three decades, really, of fairly sustained growth, where, you know, investment and growth has almost been taken for granted. And, you know, the role of the public sector and decision makers has been to try and shape that growth um, in useful ways. Uh, that will continue, but I think we're probably going to have to work harder to make sure that London remains that destination of choice and that that investment continues to flow. So I, 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 think, I, think, I think that's gonna be an interesting one to watch. I suppose the other question in, in, inside this theme really is the extent to which COVID-19 does or does not enhance or perhaps undermine uh, the whole kind of globalization, international trade perspective on things. You know, are we gonna see uh, much more political pressure towards sort of national boundaries and, and, and national solutions to some of these big questions around the economy and resilience. If it's, if it's, if it's a more nationalistic approach, then maybe, just maybe, um, that's going to be tougher to get some of this international investment to continue to flow. So I think some of these questions, it's too early to answer, but my, my, my basic position is I think London will remain attractive um, to people across the world. I think that's unlikely to change but we may have to work a bit harder at it um, and we haven't mentioned brexit but that's clearly coming down the road as well how does that affect everything you've just said does it have an impact does it expand that opportunity more for working with other countries or, or do you see that as a barrier well look, i mean i hesitate to get sort of in broad i think we've we've done really well lucy to get through all of this so far without mentioning brexit but i mean <laughs> sorry it's, it's, <laughs> It, you're right. I mean, it's it. Well, Brexit has happened. I guess the question is, you know, what are going to be the terms? Uh, is there going to be an extension beyond the end of this calendar year or not? Look, Brexit raises a lot of threats. I think uh, potential threats. Again, I mean, as 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 most analysts and commentators have said, you know, the likelihood is that Brexit was always going to have 
uh, will represent more of a risk to those parts of the UK that are already relatively struggling and that London's resilience is probably um, you know, going to be fairly significant in terms of resisting some of the um, uh, possible downside risks of Brexit. I think that remains the case, COVID or non-COVID. I think, though, there are going to be some very interesting questions going forward about, you know, one of the most fundamentally interesting questions about Brexit in London, I suppose, is what is going to be the future for international migration and the rights of those that are living and working, particularly in London, and particularly, obviously, in terms of the NHS and frontline uh, services, who, you know, until now have looked quite vulnerable in terms of Brexit. I wonder whether there's going to be a public mood that says, you know, some of these issues need to be revisited because London and the services that London so obviously relies on at times like this cannot operate, simply cannot operate, unless we have a pretty benign view about migration. Uh, and the rights of people to come and live and work here. Let's come away from Brexit. So um, back to COVID-19, what opportunities are there coming out of this, if any? Do you, do you see some um, bright lights to this as well? Yeah, uh, well, I've already, I think I mentioned that, you know, if you look at some of the major new uh, or emerging uh, big development regeneration uh, locations in London and you know obviously I'm very involved in Old Oak Common in that regard you know I think there are opportunities to really turn our minds to um, what the future shape and character now that was something that we were always doing but in a way it's much tougher to sort of think about future trends and plan for them if you're working very much in the here and now with all of the kind of assumptions that one inevitably makes about the present, everybody really is turning their minds to the future. There's already a huge amount of fascinating discussion, whether it's online or, 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 or over the dinner table at home or whatever about what is the future look like and how much is likely to change and what are people going to be, you know, keen to see more of and less of. So I think, you know, that space, it seems to me, that big space of thinking about the future and how do we build in resilience to these sorts of things if and when they happen again is really going to give us, I think, quite a creative time, actually. You know, COVID-19 is a horrible, tragic, destructive thing. But from it, I think, can come, you know, some very creative thinking that could have some big impacts on those of us that are, you know, involved in planning the city of the future. So on that then, final question for you, David, on a, from a personal perspective, I guess. In a post-COVID-19 world, what one thing would you like London to change or do differently? Oh, it's, it's very hard to sort of think what the one thing would be, um, because there's so many things that I'd like to see done differently. But I think if I had to pick on one, it would be to try and use this crisis to define a way of London living and working that does not require the ridiculous, relentless reliance on that commute in the morning and the evening. Um, and actually, do you know, I think that might be, you know, perhaps in some ways the most lasting outcome of this as well. Mm. You know, there is nobody in London at the moment who's enjoying COVID-19, but I can tell you, there is no one who is not enjoying the fact that they're not on that morning or evening commute. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I, I think the crisis, for all the reasons that we've discussed, perhaps gives us the opportunity to think again about a more civilised way to work and a more civilised way to travel to and from work, because a lot of us perhaps don't need to do it quite as often uh, as, we, as we have been. I really hope you're right on that one. <laughs> that sounds very attractive to me. So thank you, David. Thanks for joining us today and sharing your insight. Appreciate this is incredibly busy time for you. So really grateful for your, for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Lucy. And stay safe. Thank you. So I'm Lucy Webb. This has been a Future of London Alumni Network podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. For information on our next podcast and on the Learning from Crisis programme, visit futureoflondon.org.uk. Thank you and goodbye.